Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening for whenever you are listening and welcome to the seventh episode of Food for Thought, the podcast, a production by Study Association Esther Tilburg for all those interested. Via this series, you will be able to gain relevant and inspiring insights from the business world right from your home or on the go. During Food for Thought sessions, well-known and inspiring people, ranging from politicians to economists and business executives, will be interviewed on their personal experience, the company they have been working for and the experience that they have had. My name is Joshua, a student at Tilburg University. And my name is Ruben de Jonge, an alumnus at the Tilburg University. And together, we will be hosting the seventh edition of Food for Thought, the podcast. Our guest today finished his study Industrial Engineering and Management Cum Laude in Brussel in 1989. After his study, he started as auditor at the now-called company PwC. Afterwards, multiple jobs passed by where he worked his way up as CEO. In September 2011, he started as country director of Google Belgium. With such a position in this technological powerhouse, he even wrote a book called Digitalis, How to Reinvent the World. We're very happy to have him here today in our podcast, Thierry Geert. Good day, Thierry. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, since we're virtually on the Tilburg University campus, we also want to take some time to reflect upon your time as a student. You studied industrial engineering and management. And we were actually quite curious why you picked that study in the first place. Uh, a bit by accident, to be honest. Uh, all my family was working in the uh, medical industry. Uh, so I know doctors and nurses, but I know nothing about business. And uh, it was just a friend of my brother that uh, showed me what I could study, something else. And uh, thanks God, I was curious and so interested in, in other stories. And uh, it seems like something for me, but I just started without really knowing. And I think that's the best proof that there is not always a right path to be somewhere, uh, but to be curious, to listen, and, and then you make your own path, by the way, is probably the best thing you can do. Yeah, I can imagine definitely stepping out of your comfort zone and eventually throwing yourself into the deep and eventually get to know what you really like to do. Um, I'm quite curious, do you have some tips for yourself as being a student, if you look back upon your time? with the knowledge you have right now? Uh, first of all, it was my best time ever. Uh, <laughs> so uh, enjoy uh, the moment in time uh, where you have more time. Uh, you have to study, obviously, but um, it's better than everything that you will see uh, afterwards. Uh, secondly, I did more than just studying. And that's also very important. Um, I think some people are really brilliant students, but they don't haven't seen the world or they haven't done anything else than just be a brilliant student. And that's probably not enough in the world of today. Uh, I was a dish okay. Uh, I, I started two companies during my study. Oh, wow. Um, not very seriously, just for the fun, um, because it was cool, because we had friends that, that, that had some ideas and then we started doing things. Um, and so enjoy life, but also try to be... Um, to do other experiences and to live also without outside of the university. I think scouting was also something that helped me very much uh, because there's one thing you cannot learn in university is leading people. Yep. And where you are in scouting or other um, activities with friends, there you really learn to work with people and to take leadership 
with friends, which is more complicated than when you have authority in a company. Uh, and that's probably of the main important things that you have to learn outside of the university. Yeah, I can imagine. And are there still like uh, particular skills you uh, learned during your time at the scouting that you're still using today in your daily job as a leader of Google? Um, skills, uh, you, you need languages. In, the, in my case, uh, I need to be trilingual uh, in a certain way because in Belgium we need uh, French and Dutch uh, to operate. Um, so it, but it's more about communication skills. How do you communicate with, uh, with, with other people? Um, and then uh, in the audits, I helped, uh, I learned to be critical. Um, most of the time you, you accept everything around you. And yep. I think that, I don't think the audit is the f- most funny job you can do, um, but it learns you to be skeptical about everything that you see. If you see a, a data sheet, just to check if your data are right. Um, or is something that somebody tells you a story just to challenge um, the, the, the story. Uh, so I must say, you learn, very, there's no one thing that you have to learn. Um, you just have to con- be continuous learning. Uh, I think now I'm 55, uh, but um, being at Google, I have to learn every single week uh, some new things. And that's that's super interesting. That's why it's fun. Um, and that's why I still quite up to date at being at 55. So uh, you can be outdated at 30 years old and you can be completely super uh, in, interested in and with your time when you have 75. There is no age um, the, that to, to continue learning. No, and that's definitely sure. Eventually also in this like rapidly changing environment with also all the data. And of course, Google can be seen as one of the biggest accelerators of the modern day technology. The world is becoming more and more digital. And you've even written a book about it. Uh, It's called Digitalis, about a world of 4 billion people being connected together. Uh, Can you explain us your vision on the future of digitalization? So first of all, why why I've written a book, I I didn't want to be an author at all, Uh, never. Uh, But um, I was working at Google, seeing all this um, technology that could improve the world, make a better world. And around me, only scares people, people afraid of something uh, or not understanding what was happening. So I thought after the long discussions, I thought I maybe have to write a story to explain what's happening. And um, you cannot explain all these technical details if you can not give the, a, a general view on how much this is changing. And that's why I told the people, you don't live in the Netherlands or not in Belgium anymore. We all live in a new world. And it's called digitalist, this new country in a certain way. And by telling a new st- a story of a new country, you have to think about it. You say, no, no, I'm still living in the Netherlands. No, no, you live in digitalis. And then you can imagine that you have to reinvent everything that we have done so far. Because we are in the fourth industrial revolution. And an industrial revolution is something uh, quite bizarre that we have on- only done four times in uh, in a time of history. The, the way you have to reinvent everything that you have done because the technology is so innovative and it's so transformative that you have to reinvent everything. Imagine your world with or without electricity. So 150 years ago, um, we started to understand electricity and to use it in our society. It's just not the same society with or without electricity. The fact that you have electricity is completely changing the world. And now we have to do the same with digital technologies. 
most of the companies or people are just saying, well, we have the normal world and then we add on a digital part next to it. So, for example, have 100 shops and have a web shop next to it, which is completely wrong. It's completely transformational. Um, the people that are going to a physical shop sometimes have searched online before. People that are going to a shop will do a click and collect afterwards. So we don't live online and offline. We just live a normal life where digital is completely part of it and has transformed everything that we are doing. So I'm really curious, why is it in that sense so important that we become more and more digitalized? Because the world, the industrial world is not so perfect as it seems. Um, uh, for example, it's polluting a lot. The prior industrial revolutions were based on raw materials that are scarce and polluting. Yeah. It was coal for the first industrial revolution and now oil. If you digitize, you can dematerialize and therefore make it more sustainable. For example, um, we used to have encyclopedia. So there are books, so there are big books, 17 volumes of a big book that was an encyclopedia. It was very expensive, almost 2,000 euros. And producing them was very polluting. You had to use a lot of paper, a lot of um, cut, uh, inks, and then you had to transport them uh, all over the place and trucks um, and vans and shops to distribute them. And at the end, only the happy few had an encyclopedia. Yeah. I don't know if your parents had one. My parents had one, but most of my friends hadn't one. Now you have Wikipedia. Wikipedia is available for 4 million inhabitants of this planet. It's a better quality than ever encyclopedia produced before. And it's only using electricity. No paper, no ink, nothing else than just electricity. And the electricity... We can make it a, a sustainable with solar power and wind power. For example, Google, with all the data centers that are that you use to, for using the products of Google, are only working with solar and, and wind power. So if you digitize, you can democratize, you can dematerialize, and you can make it more sustainable. Is it so that in that sense, if we digitalize more, that we have an unlimited source to fuel or growth as an economy? Absolutely so, because um, in, in the past, we always spoke spoken about limited growth because there were limited resources. Um, now with digital technologies, the raw material is knowledge. It's not oil anymore or uh, steel or plastic, it's knowledge. And knowledge, you can multiplicate as much as you want. So, for example, if I have oil and you want oil, you have to pay me for the oil and then I give you the oil and yeah. you will burn the oil yeah. to do something with it. And so we have something that is one end up to be zero because you have burned it. With um, digital goods, um, I can, if I have knowledge and I bring you my knowledge, I don't lose my, my knowledge. I just duplicated knowledge. And even more interesting, if we discuss about my knowledge, I will be more intelligent after this also. So instead of losing something, we create more. So the raw material of this new revolution is knowledge that we can multiplicate as much as we want. And therefore, growth is unlimited and sustainable. Wow. I, I never looked personally like uh, the growth from this perspective. So that's really interesting. 
But during, for instance, the COVID times, uh, especially if we look at our study time as well, every became digitalized. We get study from behind our laptop screens. And I agree that in, to some extent, it's really uh, helpful that everything becomes more digitized. But on the other hand, if I, for instance, look at the online come-togethers and when we had the online drinks, yeah, I previously prefer way more being in the pub together with my friends and having physical drinks. So where do you think digitalization will stop? That's a very good question and a very important question. We have to split what's happened last year. Um, first of all, the problem was a virus, not the digital technologies was yeah. a virus. Uh, and thanks to digital technologies, we were able to continue more or less our lives. Imagine the same virus 20 years ago. 20 years ago, no e-commerce, no e-learning, uh, no video conferencing. So we were we, we would be completely alone at home, stuck for a full year. While now, thanks to digital technologies, we were able to maintain our economy. You know, the economy was, was survived in a certain way thanks to digital technologies, and we were able to stay in touch with our friends, uh, our neighbors. Um, uh, but obviously, there is. It's, it's no way that we want to do a not only digital life. But the reason for that was the virus. So when the virus will be gone or controlled with vaccines, we will be able to, make, to take the best of both worlds. So for example, I will definitely go to the pub with my friends, more, probably more than ever, because I will have more time. Why I will have more time? Because for example, in my case, I don't have to commute every day to do, go to the office because I can do a lot of meetings just by video conferencing. I win two hours of time and these hours I will reinvest in my family. I have seen my, my, my kids more than ever. Uh, if you want to do a career like mine, so that somebody you have to sacrifice your, your, your family time. Yeah. But if you take out the travel time, then it's completely okay. You can do a lot of work without uh, the travel time. And so I think we will come to a hybrid world and we take the best of that. So for example, for teaching, uh, instead of going every day to the university and travel to the university um, and see some more or less interesting professors, um, you will take the theory from the best professors in the world uh, in, in digital ways. But we will go to the university maybe two or three days a week, but there we will work together. Instead of listening to a professor, that you can do from home. When you go to the university, you will go for the social element of it, for the collaboration, for the context. And I think that's a better world to make it useful uh, and more interesting and more collaborative and even more human. In fact, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really, I have written a second book, but it's not translated to English uh, yet. And it's called Homo Digitalis, and um, where I explain why this digital revolution is more human than ever before, because we will be as human, have more time and more collaborate than ever. And also in a physical way, but only when it's positive and it's useful to be physical. For example, for a business meeting, I had sometimes to take a plane. So I took a plane to Denmark for a one hour meeting that I will never do that again. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine because like, uh, if you can do it online, of course, it's way easier and it's way more handy instead of traveling all the way to Denmark. Yeah, but you have to, if you do that all the day long, uh, digital meetings, you're completely 
exhausted at, at the end of the day. So you have to learn how to operate the machine. If you do a full day of uh, online meetings, you have to take some rests and stops. And then you will have to balance that with some days where you're meeting people. And I think the combination of that is what you have to understand when you have to be successful in the future. Okay. What's the responsibility of Google in this process to ensure that the quality of life is safeguarded in this process of becoming more digitalized? Google has a responsibility into it, but not is not responsible for it. So that's that's the that's very important. I think our our, our systems are there to help people in their daily life. And for example, um, YouTube helped the, peop the, the, the people to find interesting content to continue learning uh, last year. During COVID, YouTube was really used for learning things and do things. How, how do I have to do something? It's very useful. Uh, our video conferencing systems help the people to stay in touch. We have helping billions of people to, to be, to be in, in contact with them. Uh, and we'll help people to find the right information about Corona that when, when the crisis started, uh, we put all our resources on being sure that the right content was on top of Google. People were, were asking about Corona and you had sometimes very bad content appearing because some people worked on fake news. Um, and then instead of selling advertising at that moment, we're focusing on getting that information right. So very important role to make information available, the right information at the right time that you need. So we are an, an enabler. I think we, we are sometimes showing what you can do with technology and how you can use it. And then we try also to discuss with you, uh, but also with policymakers, how to make the best use of the te technology. Also to be aware that you, we don't have to use everything all the time. Uh, don't spend two hours a day on social media. That will not make a better life. Use social media to be in contact with friends. Fantastic. But if you are overwhelmed by social media, uh, you probably at the end will... Yeah, have a terrible life because you will compare your life with the beautiful life that some others are, are showing. So I think our role, because we are successful with technology, is to try as much to explain what is happening with this technology and how you have to learn to operate with it um, to have a better well-being and a better society. Okay. Yeah, very nice that you already briefly mentioned that Google as a sort of information bank, an information provider for the world. And um, most of us know Google as uh, the search engine uh, where we get our information and on the latest news and our topics of interest. And consequently, uh, Google has a major responsibility in the information provision of the entire world population, so to speak. Um, how do you determine that the information that is provided is right or fits me when I'm searching on Google? That's probably the, that is our number one challenge. Uh, but that's also our mission. Right? So our mission is to make words, world information available and useful for everyone. And it's not just finding information, it's finding the right information and trustworthy information. And therefore we have thousands of engineers working And the most complicated is to make to do that in a neutral way. We don't want to push a certain information to somebody. We just want to see if there are trustable sources and then make the match. Um, and some people are looking for information that we are not so proud of. But it's with that that they are searching. Our role is to uh, to make it little possible. So it has to be independent. Uh, we don't want to bring people in certain direction but we have to be trustworthy. And that's a complicated story. 
Uh, and I think that's not only a challenge for Google, it's a, a challenge for all society uh, to get fake news out and to more good objective information on top of it. But for example, for Corona, what we did is contacting the governments because in a Corona crisis, the only trustable source on a certain moment is a governmental source. And then we say, in this case, we push the information from the government. Um, so our role is to try to make sense of this world and we use algorithms for that we use um, sometimes people when we have to contact governments um, and I think it's an super interesting challenges and we try to make it right and I think we have it right in most of the cases but not always um, and I think nobody can have it 100% right today yeah then especially nice that you touch already on the, the, the fake news topic because it's a very big topic um, amongst uh, the, the, the people uh, in the country now and um, how do you as Google actually prevent uh, the, the fake news from reaching the platform or even from spreading? There are tons of methods. Um, uh, one of the methods are that we work with ONGs that are that are specialized in some topics. So for example, or for um, uh, on, on the question of the uh, uh, the people that don't believe that the Holocaust happened, we are working with Jewish organizations that do this much better and that help us to identify uh, the wrong sources about that. But it's just an example. We work in Belgium with Child Focus, and Child Focus is an organization helping um, the child to be safety, safe on the, on, the, on, the, on the web. And we work with them because they understand better the reality of the children than we do. So in all over the world, we have collaborations with ONGs um, that have a neutral approach, but they know better a certain part of that. Because fake news is a very broad subject, you know, you can, and it's also, depending on countries, it can be different. Um, and it's, it's very cultural linked and, and, and linked to language. Uh, so we have both global principles, then also local collaborations to make uh, that happen and working with news organizations, for example, on fact-checking uh, on the news. Do you think that uh, governments should be involved in this process, that not only companies like Google have to safeguard all the news, but that actually governments should get involved um, yeah, within this topic? You know, it's such a big challenge that I don't think that you can... Um, take the risk of just having somebody responsible for that. We're all responsible for that. And so definitely the government, right regulation and the right police uh, on the web. Secondly, all the operators have to do their job. So like Google uh, is doing a lot about that. Um, and thirdly, the user, you and I as citizen, we also have to do our part. We have to stay critical. We have to just think about what we are doing. It's also the same with phishing. Sometimes intelligent people are just clicking on, on, on links where if you think twice, you would never, never uh, click on such uh, phishing links. To make that last possible for everyone, because some people are more educated than others, some people are more critical than others, I think we have to educate our children better. Uh, we have to have media literacy uh, also at already a very, very low age um, because we have built a world which is amazing. Digitalization has a lot of opportunities, but there are also some risks. 
And we don't educate our, our children to be aware of those risks. For example, we educate our, our children not to cross the streets without looking, watching at cars, because it's, it's, a, it's risky to cross the streets because they are cars. But then we build the information highway and we don't explain our children what they have to do with it. So they're sometimes 12 years old and nobody told them how important um, it is to have a good password. Nobody told them that it's a good, bad idea to just post things on social media and that it had a bad consequence. And so if we don't give that, it's, a, it, it's part of our life today, it's part of our world. And if you don't educate children, when they start to be grown up, accidents are happening. So it's really the education system, the government, the tech companies, and the citizens we all have our responsibility to get that right. But I think that if everybody is doing that, we definitely can have a better world than we had before because fake news is from all the times. You know, the tabloids are, were producing more fake news 10 years ago than, than there is today. Um, so it's not a new phenomenon, but it can be spread faster. And therefore, we need everyone to work on it. Um, talking on another subject, uh, recently a documentary aired on, on Netflix talking about biases within uh, lines of code and specifically uh, racial biases. Um, during the new Android uh, version launch, you paid specific attention to it. Uh, you mentioned that uh, people of color are misrepresented uh, in, by the algorithm uh, previously uh, in pictures and you uh, introduced features that should enhance picture taking for people of color. Um, can you maybe explain the audience how it is even possible that um, for me, the picture for someone who is white of color, it's more easy to have a representative picture than for a person of color? First of all, we have to understand that if we want to make a better world, we have to make sure that everyone can use these digital technologies, not only in numbers, but also other people from other religions or other origin, other languages. Um, digital technologies are offering opportunities to make it possible. For example, Google Translate is translating 147 languages in both directions. So it makes it possible for somebody, a refugee coming to the Netherlands and knowing only Syrian can today have a live conversation thanks to those. So that's the positive side of it. On the negative side, to make it work, you have engineers working on systems and they have to test their system on something. So if you have 10 white engineers are working on a photo app and they want to make it possible to make better pictures, um, they will use a data set with white male pictures uh, and then they will work on it and they will find it fantastic what they are doing and then they will release their system to the world and then some Asian people or some black people will try, start to use it and it will not work or it will not work that much. So therefore we need first of all a more diverse set of engineers. So you need engineers with all these different backgrounds to be aware of that. Secondly, um, we need data sets with this diversity. Now, to make it sure that Google will operate like that, we created a charter, a charter for artificial intelligence um, with some principles. Um, and then you can say, oh, well, that's fine. Google is doing that and have his own charter, but there is no control on it. 
Well, we decided to publish the charter so that we have 2 billion users that can control what we are doing. And also ONGs that are, for example, specialized in racism that will criticize our systems. And so we, we, we said the only way to, to make that right is let's make everything open and transparent. And so also when we have some bad experience with the system, like say some pictures were not that good for black people, we are super honest about it. We just publish to say, it was not right, we are correcting. And by doing so, we make us vulnerable. But also, I think that's inspiring for the world around us, that, that more people are aware of these problems. And um, there are a lot of things happening like that, not only on our systems, but in the past, uh, there was some rec uh, recognition of people that was an Asian company uh, working. That's that you can recognize people on the street for surveillance. And that system was good for Asian people, but was not good for white and black people, for example. So it's not only the white, it's just that systems are produced by some place in the world and are sometimes has a big bias into it. And Google has decided to crack this bias by hiring more diverse, control our data sets and mainly issue and control that charter. It's really nice to see that you take such a responsibility for, for this problem. Um, and since AI can often be sort of a black box, um, how realistic is it to update older algorithms that are somewhat prone to these kind of biases? Uh, you know, the world was not perfect and will not be perfect. So I think perfection uh, kills um, just good work. Um, if we just are aware, once again, with that education that I discussed before, that we it will not be perfect, but we can strive for perfection. Uh, and therefore, we need some regulation. Uh, regulation also always be used for forcing the people that are not behaving exactly as they should to get on the right path. And so uh, we are working with the European Commission to help to make a positive AI regulation, not something that will block AI in Europe, because that's a risk if you over-regulate then nothing, nothing is happening anymore. There is no innovation anymore. But if you don't regulate at all, it appears that regulation is not right either because then it's tied to bad innovation or uh, it can be, there is no standard and nothing to operate in. So I, I, I think with having some boundaries from the government, it will help um, the success of technology uh, for good. That's really nice to hear that... Uh Actually, if I summarize it correctly, that we need to start uh, with some education of, of children uh, within the, the um, internet highway, so to speak. Um, and that we need, uh, or as Google needs to work together and takes this responsibility with governments and other NGOs to, yeah, to make a, a better digital world. Um, yeah, up, up next, uh, we have a short intermezzo uh, with some questions of our listeners. First question that I have from our listeners is how did you as CEO of Google Belgium motivate your employees during COVID-19? 
Well, yeah, that was a new challenge. You know, I quite experienced manager, but something like that I haven't seen before. So like everyone, I think we were surprised and struggled. To be honest, it was not perfect from the from the first time. Um, what I mainly did is continuously continue on why we are here and why we are working for Google. And that's why this uh, element of putting the right information on top uh, was not only done, but also communicated wisely to everyone to say, no, no, we are just not just looking for advertising or doing some marketing. We're all working to get that information right to every citizen. And uh, showing those numbers and explaining the mission and what we are doing with the mission during Corona was the most important thing to motivate people that sometimes has lost, you know, they were blocked in an apartment with two little kids. And you could really ask yourself why, why I'm doing this. And it's important to explain the why. So first of all, the why. And secondly, is to be as human as you can. So because you are completely digital, you have to compensate as a manager to make it as human as you can be. So yes, we did virtual coffee chats, but on those chats, it was really, you couldn't talk about business. It was really the aim of asking the people how they feel, um, what they were doing, how they could be helped. And yes, helping some out with some things that were not directly business related, but helping the people uh, uh, the third thing is to always add energy to a meeting. You know, you probably, if, if I say that to you, you probably recognize it. Sometimes you are meeting with somebody and he's draining energy out of the meeting. And sometimes you meet somebody and in a certain way, you get more energy out of the meeting. And we literally, very, very explicitly ask our manager to add energy to every meeting. So even when it was complicated, even if they were exhausted or uh, not inspired, to think about five minutes before the meeting and to say, how will I add meeting uh, energy to the meeting? And so I, we added uh, tons of energy, loads of energy to all our internal meetings, but also with our customers and partners. And I think that was really recognized. I had a CEO uh, in the summer after the first uh, uh, three, four months, and what is amazing, um, we love to meet with the people from Google because they, they're not naive, but they'll help us to keep it going. Uh, they're positive and they bring energy. And I think that was the proof that it was also recognized from the other side that this is for helping you. And as humans, we really have a, it's a choice. What, how do we behave and what, which impact we can do on others? And so just being aware to say, I can drain information, uh, energy out of a meeting and if I can add energy to the meeting. And if I'm meeting with five people, I will have multiplicated energy and we'll have five people with the energy that can help others. Um, that's really a decision. And it's the most important decision that we took uh, during the pandemic. And, and how did you as a manager add some energy to, for example, a meeting? It's about, a, it, it's, it's purely... Um, how you start a meeting. You know, I, I, well, I will ask you at the end of this meeting if you received energy or got drained of energy with this meeting and be, 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 uh, be honest. Um, it's about, once again, when I started with a meeting, think about this why, being empathic of the other field and then to be energetic, not 
like crazy, like Kermit the Frog, but uh, just to, you know, keep it going and be energized in your tone of voice. Um, and that's, that's something that you can learn, uh, uh, but mainly when you just think about it, you can, everybody can do it. Some people are doing it better. Uh, a startup comedian will probably be better in giving energy than, than just a public servant. But I think everyone can do it. And um, another question that we have from our listeners, I can already see some, some pixel airbuds, if I'm correct. Yes. How many Google products do you use? I'm not an early adapter at all. I'm the old gray man. Um, <laughs> uh, but, and so I start to use technology when it's uh, stable. Uh, so I'm not the one to purchase, to use a new gadget of Google at the first day. Uh, but I got my Pixel Buds uh, last week uh, when it appeared to be yeah, a good product, stable, and then get it uh, uh, used. And now, um, and I think that's a good thing for me to do because I'm not a tech freak that is speaking about future and is talking about gadgets that only a few people are using. I can really talk about technology that is um, used by a broad range of people and that has an impact on our daily life. And so I installed only the uh, Google Assistant, let's say a year or a year and a half ago, which is quite late, but it's at the moment that there was a quick result size in, in Belgium and in the Netherlands. And then when you talk about the Google Assistant, that most of the people can understand what it is and not just two months ahead of everyone. Okay, and then I have a, a last question that we have from our listeners. Um, we can imagine that being CEO of, of Google Belgium is quite a busy job. Uh, how do you manage your work-life balance? I don't believe in a work-life balance. I believe in a work-life mix. Uh, it's like, if you, you know, Belgians like mayonnaise. <laughs> to make good mayonnaise, all the ingredients have to be a good quality. So if you have a fantastic job, and a terrible private life, I don't think that it's working. So you have to be the best possible job with the best possible private life. And then there are no real boundaries and there is no problem. You know, I sometimes during the week do things for my kids or with my kids and that's completely okay. And if it's if it's a rainy day uh, on a Sunday, I maybe spend my full day answering emails and I don't disturb anyone because I don't, you know, you'll never win anything with me by answering your email on a Sunday. Uh, it's even the other sense. Sometimes when I see people answering too much emails on a Sunday, I really ask if that was a conscious choice of or not. So I do it like a balance. And I think that's uh, um, if, you, if you are really conscious about that and you, are, you see that the two elements are important, um, that's fantastic because that's how humans are. There are some days, maybe on a Wednesday, you're not inspired at all to work for your company. Uh, you struggle a bit and you would better go for a walk. But maybe on a Sunday and Sunday afternoon, you have nothing to do and, and you prefer to do some work. And also in my case, I have to do some external contacts and networking that is during weekend, for example. But then I have to compensate by stopping earlier during the week and go to a restaurant with my wife. But maybe I will not be so productive the day after that because I will have some too much, too much wine because I love good wine. Um, but that's okay if you keep it on balance. And I think in the past, in the industrial world, 
the uh, let's say an employee was working nine to five and then only working and then commuting during two hours and then um, not working next to that. And then managers were working crazy day and night, seven days a week. And I think both are not ideal, um, but therefore you need a job that you like. And that's probably the most important thing to do. Don't look for a job where you earn a lot of money or um, whatever, or have a big company car. Look for something that you're inspired by. If you do what you like, then it's not a job. And I sometimes say, I never work. I don't work. I, I don't have the impression that I have to work. You can also you can say I'm busy with Google 80 hours a, a week, but I don't see that at all. I, I, I just think I'm doing the right thing. Uh, I think I help uh, 10 million users in Belgium to make sense of the web and to make their day more productive and to be in touch with each other. And that's giving me a lot of energy. And so I don't think I have to work. Um, and I have the same energy when I play with my kids that I'm working for Google. Yeah, I think that's really nice to hear. And that uh, this is also maybe some recommendation for uh, for some students here. Uh, thank you for answering uh, our listeners' questions. Yeah, it's so beautiful to see someone having such a passion and actually found his passion in the way he does his work. Uh, it's really, I see the enthusiasm coming from it and I'm even getting energized. Um, Google is worldwide known for its innovation capacity and sometimes even the word Google is seen synonymous to the word innovation. What do you think is the most vital ingredient for Google to be so innovative? Belief and culture. Um, and uh, first of all about belief. The, the thing that Google is doing right is just something quite easy. Uh, you have to believe in the possibility of digital technologies. Um, you have to believe it's possible. And then uh, behind that, you put a culture where you are stimulated to be innovative, you collaborate a lot, and um, uh, you have the, um, we work with uh, moonshots. You know, instead of to try to, to do something incremental, we want to improve something by 1% a year, and they are busy for 20 years changing something. We prefer to have a moonshot being really ambitious to reinvent completely something and maybe fail. And that's also completely fine. That's part of the culture. We have the right to fail. We have the right to be wrong, but we don't have the right not to be ambitious, not to try um, to change the world. And so, but once again, the first thing you have to do and what most of the company have missed is just to look around you, see the technology that is there and believe that you can change the world with that. And then something that we did where seems to be amazing, but looking afterwards, it was just taking the opportunity that was available there and that nobody took. And in the, in, there are too many things that we have done that shouldn't have been done by traditional companies, but they just didn't believe that it was possible. So just believe it's possible. And I would relate that to you all, you all students, believe you can, believe in your own. If you believe, if you have your self-respect and you believe what you can do, you can do the same. You can have a moonshot for yourself, but it has to, once again, it doesn't have to be to be the big CEO. Sometimes it has to be what you believe in. You want to improve healthcare. You want to help children. You want to be a better teacher. It don't mind, 
but believe in yourself that you can do it. Um, because I, I see too many people around me that are blocked by themselves. They they would love to, to be a teacher, but their parents said they have to be a bookkeeper, so they are a bookkeeper. And they are bad, not motivated bookkeeper instead of being a brilliant, motivated teacher. And so Google is doing just the same. We believe in our capability of innovation, and therefore we, we, we motivate ourselves to make those changes, and then we create the right culture to make it happen. Yeah, that's beautiful. And what would you say is your role in this process as being the country director to steering this process? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a strange job to be the uh, to be responsible for Google in a country because it's a global company in a certain way. So on, there are some parts on which I'm, I, I've obviously, I cannot change the color of the Google homepage, for example. No view on that. Uh, but also my role is very important to make that work. I'm the kind of ambassador uh, between Belgium and Google in two senses. So I'm looking at Google, this lens of, of Belgium and saying, well, we have to change this. Uh, we have to operate differently. There are those opportunities in Belgium, but also um, connecting Belgium with Google to say to Belgians, look at the opportunities, look at what you can uh, do. And then working with partners, customers and policymakers uh, to make this uh, ideal uh, match. But I would say, it's mainly about people. It's working with people, uh, hiring the right people, and give them the right tools and uh, resources to make it them successful. So I don't want to be successful. I want to hire right people and make them successful, which finally make you successful. But that's <laughs> a, uh, it's an altruistic way um, to make uh, to, to work with people. And um, so I don't consider myself to be the boss of anyone in Belgium, but more the coach the facilitator and the primus inter pares, the ones that are that are pushing the people further to push them to be ambitious or to do the right thing. I guess that's a beautiful description of leadership. Yeah, and as we're nearing the end of the interview, I first want to thank you uh, uh, for your time. Jerry, for sitting down with us and talking to us. Uh, I think it was really interesting and enlightening to hear more about your position as a country director of Belgium uh, and your view on digitalization. I sure got a lot of energy here from the interview. But before we finish, I have one last question for you. We always ask this question to our guests at the end of our interview. You might have guessed it a bit by the name of a show, Food for Thought, uh, Stof tot Nadenken, as we would say in Dutch. Um, do you care to share some final food for thought with us, yeah. with our listeners? Uh, it can be anything and just think big. And it's only one or can I choose two or three? <laughs> yeah, you can maybe choose two. Yeah, yeah. Um, the first thing I would say, don't be afraid of new technology. Be afraid of old technologies. All technologies are polluting, are risky for the humans uh, and, and, and are there to be changed. So believe in uh, new technologies. The second one is about you. Uh, it's the best moment in time to be an entrepreneur. So don't start too fast as being an employee somewhere. Think about being an entrepreneur because we have to reinvent the world. And for an entrepreneur that gives tons, loads of opportunities businesses that you can start, apps you can make, uh, markets you can address. Uh, so I would, I may be jealous of you all. I would love to stop finishing my university now and not 30 years ago because there's so much uh, thing to do. And if you 
don't believe you can be an entrepreneur, be an entrepreneur. Go in a company to change things, to be that young, innovative talent and never, never, never um, uh, stay in a company when you don't feel that you have that possibility and you can develop yourself. Then you have to change on time because otherwise you will become old before myself. that note, I would like to thank our listeners for listening to Food for Thought podcast. Podcast with Jerry Geerts, Country Director of Google Belgium. Our next interview will be with Virginia Janquilovich, CEO of the famous water bottle company Topper. If you don't want to miss any of our future episodes, make sure to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram at Tilburg and at foodfortart.tiu. If you want to find out more about Jerry's book, Digitalis, you can find our link in the description of this podcast. This podcast was a production by Study Association, SC Tilburg, Tilburg School of Economics and Management, and the podcast producer.